0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 9, Daniel chapter 3. Open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. We're going to reread this chapter in sections, and I will advise you ahead of time. That while the last several lessons have been mostly technical and historical today, it's going to get home and it's going to get pretty personal. So open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1101. We're just going to read the first seven verses. Nebuchadnezzar the king had a gold statue made, 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, which he set up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babel. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king summoned the viceroys, prefects, governors, judges, treasurers, counselors, sheriffs, and all the provincial officials to assemble and come to the dedication of the statue which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And the viceroys and the prefects and the governors and the judges and the treasurers and the counselors and the sheriffs and all the provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the statue which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood in front of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and a herald proclaimed, Peoples, nations, languages... You are ordered that when you hear the sound of the horn and the pipe and the harp, the zither, the lute, the bagpipe, and the rest of the musical instruments, you are to fall down, you are to worship the gold statue that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship is to be thrown immediately into a blazing hot furnace. Therefore, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn and the pipe and the harp and the zither and the lute and the rest of the musical instruments... All the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold statue that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. King Nebuchadnezzar demanded that an enormous statue, an image, be set up in the plain of Dura, 60 cubits by 6 cubits. It was a monstrosity. In ancient times, the only known statue... that stood the same or higher was the Colossus of Rhodes which wasn't erected by the Greeks until around 300 B.C. It needs to be taken into account, however, that more than likely the overall 60 cubic height included its pedestal base that reduced the actual height of the human image to probably around 45 cubits. Nonetheless, at the time that it was built, it would have been an awe-inspiring thing to see. Now there's no hint in the scriptures as to any person or God that this statue was meant to represent. Opinions of scholars vary, with some imagining that it had to be an image of the king's chief god, or better, Babylon's chief national god. But surely the text would have named that particular god if that was so, since Babylon had so many and honored so many gods. Might it have been a likeness of the king himself? Well, while it can't be ruled out entirely, there's no suggestion of it. So the best solution that fits the text And taking into account what's going to happen next is that the image represented the governmental power of Babylon itself. The idea of it surely came from Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue that represented a, a succession of four world empires. So this golden statue that he had built was essentially the national symbol of the government of the worldwide empire of Babylon. Now this giant statue no doubt had a strong religious element to it. But that was because all nation and kings were interwoven with their gods. No, no separation was possible. But the issue behind the king setting this statue up was not his religious zealousness. Rather it was that it was a It was high time in his mind that the many conquered nations and kingdoms that that formed his vast empire were now to forsake any semblance of independence and they were to declare allegiance to the central government of Babylon and therefore automatically to whatever god the king held highest as representing the true power behind the Babylonian empire. Now this was a matter of either declaring obedient allegiance or declaring hostile defiance to the pagan version of the Trinity. The king, his nation, and the national god. And as we continue to study Daniel, I find myself... Well, in the uncomfortable position of having to challenge the teaching of both well-meaning believers and not-so-well-meaning unbelievers. This is because there are a number of Christian denominational doctrines floating around that are based on Daniel, but which take great and unwarranted liberties with the Holy Text. And on the other hand, there is modern scholarship that unequivocally denounces Daniel as a pious Jewish fraud and says that the book has nothing to do with Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar. Rather, it was written as a diatribe against Antiochus Epiphanes, and, as a message of hope and encouragement to the persecuted Jewish community, therefore it was written around one hundred sixty five BC Now I have spent much time on this particular aspect of of Daniel's study with you because many Christians have no idea that their own pastors or seminary professors or favorite Bible teachers and commentators actually believe that this pivotal Bible book is a fake. And that belief comes from little more than scholarly arrogance and academic elitist consensus as their proof. Because there is nothing empirical to lean upon. There is nothing else to explain away the amazing predictions of Daniel that have all proved to be accurate thus far except for their own imaginations and theories. Thus at times I want to highlight a passage that these Bible critics will choose to explain away in order to prove their unbelieving stances. And I want to do this so that you know how to deal with it when you encounter it. And this is one of those times. The Bible critic's thought process is that Daniel chapter 3, in this chapter we're hearing a story of a terrible religious persecution that's much like the tribulation of the book of Revelation. And although the book of Daniel ascribes it to the king of Babylon in the 6th century B.C., in fact, this is a direct referral to the infamous Antiochus Epiphanes who despised the Jews and had no tolerance for their Judaism. Antiochus Epiphanes was of the Seleucid dynasty and he ruled a huge section of the Middle East that you see in this map that in modern times we can generally call Syria, Lebanon, Iran, and Iraq. The Seleus family along with three other aristocratic families were the recipients of the Grecian Empire that Alexander, Alexander the Great had acquired and built by conquering the Media Persian Empire, that bronze empire that took over the silver empire. And before he died, Alexander split his empire into four governing districts, each of the aforementioned families being given charge over one of them. In the end, the Ptolemy and Seleucid families dominated the former Greek empire. Now, Epiphanes viewed the Jewish religion as ignorant superstition. And because the Jews were fanatically dedicated to their one God their holy temple to their holy book the Torah he also saw them as rigid dangerous, a hateful people because they were intolerant. They were unwilling to simply adopt the multiple God system of everybody else in the world. He saw the Jews "...as a threat to peace in his kingdom and to mankind in general. Therefore Epiphanes determined to eradicate their religion and their religious leaders, and Judaism therefore was outlawed. The temple was turned into a pagan shrine, and those Jews who violated the king's decree and continued on with their loyalty to Judaism and to the God of Israel were executed." usually in the most horrific manner, such as being burned alive. And so the modern Bible critics say this is what's being described in Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar isn't really Nebuchadnezzar. It's It's just kind of a coded language for the anonymous writer of Daniel to disguise his speaking out against Antiochus Epiphanes. However, the abundant written history of Babylon itself and the well-known way that the world of that era understood the sphere of the gods soundly refutes what these Bible scholars claim. In fact, there was no religious persecution being described in the story of Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue we neither read before, during, or after this episode that anyone, Jew or otherwise, had to give up their own gods. They merely had to show respect for the national god of Babylon that was symbolized by that giant golden statue in Dura which represented the government administration of Babylon. This was typical, it was customary for that time. The people of every nation in kingdom, including the Jews, were free to keep their idols, their shrines, their temples, to keep praying their prayers to any gods they wanted to without fear or oppression. In fact, what is described in Daniel 3 is fundamentally different from what Antiochus Epiphanes did because Epiphanes openly sought to bring an end to Judaism and to violently force his gods upon everyone in his kingdom to, in his mind, create a religious uniformity. Thus in Daniel 3, we simply don't hear outcries from the people of Babylon, nor of mass executions. We don't read of any who seem to oppose what Nebuchadnezzar demanded. Rather, what comes next... Is, from the Babylonian viewpoint, merely a game of power politics. So let's read about those power politics. Let's continue with Daniel chapter 3, starting at verse 8. Daniel chapter 3, verse 8. But then some Kazdim, Chaldeans, Approached, and They began denouncing the Jews, and they said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, May the king live forever. Your majesty, you have ordered that everyone who hears the sound of the horn and the pipe and the harp and the zither, the lute, the bagpipe, and the rest of the musical instruments is to fall down. They are to worship the gold statue, and that whoever does not fall down and worship is to be thrown into a blazing hot furnace. Well, there are some Jews who you put in charge of the affairs of the prince of Babel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and these men, your majesty, have paid no attention to you. They don't serve your gods and they do not worship the gold statue you set up. Well, in a raging fury, Nebuchadnezzar ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And when the men had been brought before the king, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, is it true that you neither serve my gods nor worship the gold statue I set up? All right then. If you are prepared, when you hear the sound of the horn and the pipe and the harp and the zither and the lute and the bagpipe and the rest of the music instruments to fall down and worship the gold statue, very well. But if you won't, if you won't worship, you will immediately be thrown into a blazing hot furnace and what God will save you from my power then? We're told that some Chaldeans came forward as informants. They tell the king that despised, despite his explicit instruction, to his subjects that upon the sound of all these various musical instruments that they are to drop to their knees, they are to face towards that golden statue, some Jews didn't. The Aramaic, uh, Aramaic, Aramaic word used here is sagid And while in the appropriate context it can be used to mean worship, it really only means to lay prostrate. So one could sagid before a king, meaning to prostrate oneself as to worship the king, to show royal respect, or one could sagid before their god, meaning to lay prostrate as worship to that deity. And to me, in this context, to pay homage is a decidedly better translation because this is all about showing allegiance to the government of Babylon even if all governments in that era involved a national god. And again, the issue of the golden statue is political. It had nothing to do with religion as we would think of it today. There were no priests, there was no holy men, there were no religious rituals involved in this. Only politicians at various levels were responding to a government edict, and we read about them. And the Jews, who were the Chaldeans, were tattling... They were tattling on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They do not serve your gods, they say, and they don't lay prostrate before the statue. This verse, verse 12, is important because they didn't accuse the Jewish trio of not worshipping the god statue. Rather, the accusation, if you read it carefully, was of not worshipping the several Babylonian gods, plural, gods. The Jews don't worship Babylon's pantheon of gods. And in addition, they didn't follow the king's commandment to bow down to the statue at its dedication ceremony. See, the issue is transparent. The Chaldeans, who were native Babylonians didn't like a bunch of outsider Jews having the high government positions that they felt rightfully belonged to Babylonians. The king had given these high ranking positions to these three Jewish men as a result of their being able to interpret his dream. You remember that? Not only had the Jews humiliated these Chaldeans, by being able to know the king's dream when they couldn't, but now they were their bosses. Well, Nebuchadnezzar well knew, as did everyone in Babylon and especially in the capital city, that the Jews had one God only and by their religion they weren't permitted to worship other gods. This incident was just the opportunity these Chaldeans needed to end their shame by getting rid of these three Jewish officials. Well, the king is absolutely furious and he summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But he gives them an opportunity to explain themselves, no doubt, because he understood the jealousy of these Chaldeans who, remember, he had at one point condemned to death. And when he inquires if it could be true that they don't worship his gods and that he didn't prostrate themselves towards the new statue, it's not that he thinks that they have become or ought to be multiple god worshippers. Rather, this is an issue of their showing proper respect and a degree of political correctness. The king has put them in charge of the government of his own capital city of Babel. To be rebels in this matter, well, that makes the king look pretty bad. I mean, can't they just play the game? What harm would it do? Everyone understands that the Jews are God-poor. They only got one God. Just go along to get along. Everybody will live, prosper, and be happy. So in a long-winded repeat of his command to listen for the symphony of musical instruments as the signal and then to drop into a prostrate position before the statue, the king obviously hopes that these three Jews will now do it since they've seen just how upset he is and how serious he is that anyone who doesn't obey, even including them, gets sent to the furnace. To say their response doesn't please the king is an understatement. Most versions say something like, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this matter. And at first glance that sounds pretty arrogant, pretty proud, very disrespectful. A response you just don't give to the monarch of the world. And don't forget, these three understand that Yehovah has chosen Nebuchadnezzar to be his servant on earth and has given him dominion over every sphere sea, land and air so most scholars, Jewish and Christian agree that this translation that we usually read in our Bibles leaves something to be desired most likely the sense of it is we really don't have a choice in the matter what you have told us is true and there's not much we can say to change your mind that's kind of the sense of it But then comes a pronouncement from these three Jewish men that we need to pay close attention to. Go back to Daniel chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 17 and 18. Go ahead and start at 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, Your question doesn't require an answer from us. Your majesty... If our God whom we serve is able to save us, He will save us from the blazing hot furnace and from your power. But even if He doesn't, we want you to know, Your Majesty, that we will neither serve your gods nor nor worship the gold statue which you've set up. You know, I at once feel thrilled at the courage and faith they demonstrate (laughs) but also a little bit anxious because while I hope and pray that I would have the willingness to let go of my life as easily as they seem to be letting go of theirs in order to be faithful to the Lord and to death I won't know for sure unless and until I'm faced with it and wouldn't you just know it This is yet another passage that the Bible critics say is proof that this book is from the age of Antiochus Epiphanes because religious fanaticism, as radical as exposed here, was rampant in those days. And certainly this must be one of the more extreme examples of fanaticism that one could imagine. After all, these three young men understand that the penalty they are facing for merely not bending down on their face for a few moments towards a lifeless statue is to be burned alive. God knows their hearts, right? Can't they briefly do what's wrong as long as God knows knows they, they, they love Him? God knows this. Why can't they do what's wrong for a little while to save their own lives? But that suspicion of religious fanaticism, you see, gets rebuked when we look at the entirety of their response to the king. In verse 17 they say that if their God is able to save them from the furnace, He will. Now the earliest rabbis, church fathers, Bible commentators were uncomfortable with the difficulty of this verse, because taken in one sense, there seems to be an expressed doubt as to whether or not the God of Israel has the ability, or maybe the jurisdiction, to be able to rescue them from the fire of the furnace. And there's been all sorts of attempted solutions by scholars and teachers to address this difficulty but truly none of them gives us a satisfactory answer without doing great harm to the biblical text at least as we have it transmitted to us today so indeed to me I can only conclude that the three men are being open and honest they're telling their true feelings and the bottom line is, they just don't know what God can do and will do under these circumstances. But then comes the part that sears my heart. They say that whether Jehovah can or cannot, and does or does not rescue them from this horrible, painful death they're facing, Nonetheless, they will not serve Babylon's gods. They will not lay prostrate before that statue, the symbol of the one world power that is the Babylonian Empire. They will not do it. And I think we could contemplate these words for some time and still not be done with them. If I might be permitted to offer a paraphrase of those powerful words those three Jewish men. We will do what is right before God and let the chips fall where they may. Solomon said as much in a far more eloquent manner than mine. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14, Solomon said, Here's the final conclusion. Now that you have heard everything, fear God. Keep His commandments. This is what I being human is all about for God will bring judgment everything we do to judgment everything we do including every secret whether good or bad since Solomon was addressing Hebrews what he meant was that's what being a redeemed human is all about keeping God's commandments. Little else matters in the end for a believer. And the second of the Ten Commandments is that the redeemed of God shall worship only one God and no other. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to die to uphold this fundamental commandment Fanaticism, the Bible critics accuse. No. No. I say this is an example of the faithfulness that is expected of all of us God's worshipers. One of my favorite movies is called The Kingdom of Heaven. This epic is the story of the Crusades and of a young englishman who had lost his wife and unborn child to suicide then he murdered his own brother who was a priest in anger for condemning his wife to hell he fled his village with his newly discovered father to jerusalem to fight for the christian king of jerusalem and to try to find personal forgiveness and and, and salvation And he ended up committing to try to help keep Jerusalem Christian. The Muslims wanted the city that they call Al-Quds back in their possession. And the great warrior leader Saladin was coming with hundreds of thousands of Islamic soldiers to lay siege to the citizen army and a few bold crusaders who were left behind to defend those ancient stone walls. And when the Muslim hordes arrived and they surrounded the city and they arrayed their many siege machines, they laid out their demands to the people. Open the gates. Be taken as slaves or die. And the Catholic Bishop of Jerusalem Seeing the hopelessness of the situation suggested that everyone should renounce their Christian faith, profess Allah, and then later, when safe, they could repent and again take up the cross of Christ. I've never ceased to get that picture out of my mind. What a stark contrast to Shadrach, Meshach, and Avednego's response to probable death. For their faith. But I think that we probably all wrestle with such doubts and and thoughts akin to that bishop in the film, shameful as they might be. Even if our situation isn't nearly as dire as those residents of Jerusalem faced against Saladin or what these three Jewish youth faced against Nebuchadnezzar. In our day to day 21st century lives some of us just hate confrontation we'll do anything to avoid it so to defend God's truth is just too emotionally costly to us others of us have the greatest need to please people and it distresses us greatly to upset or disappoint anyone for any reason So to point out immorality, sin, or even bad bad doctrine is just too risky. And some of us are so concerned that we not upset our social circle, our family, or to make ourselves appear to be out of step with our peers and societal norms, that we work rather hard to keep a lid on our faith and instead to make it as expansive and inclusive and as tolerant as we can. I'm afraid none of that reflects the true godly biblical faith that we see being bravely defended by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And yet, <clears throat> let's look at what these three Jews did from another equally difficult angle how often I've been reminded by my brothers and sisters in the Lord that much patience and pacifism is required on our part because we are always to obey our government at all costs even if it bothers our Christian sensibilities if I only had a dollar For all the time, some of these following passages have been quoted to me as a proper cause for Christian inaction and in silence. Listen to this one out of 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14. For the sake of the Lord, submit yourselves to every human authority, whether to the emperor as being supreme, to governors as being sent by him to punish wrongdoers and praise those who do what is good. Here's another one. Romans 13, 1 and 2. Everyone is to obey their governing authorities, for there is no authority that is not from God. And the existing authorities have been placed where they are, by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities are resisting what God has instituted, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. And perhaps the most quoted of them all. Matthew 22.19-21 to 21. Show me the coin used to pay the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asks them, whose name and picture are on these? The emperor's, they replied. And Yeshua said to them, "Nu, no, Give the emperor what belongs to the emperor and give to God what belongs to God. So if we went by the rather typical... Christian interpretation of these verses and a few similar or parallel ones, does that tell us then that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were wrong to defy the king of Babylon? The law of the land was to be present at the statue dedication to declare allegiance to that statue. The chief lawgiver of the government laid down the law and it applied equally to everybody. He was an entirely legitimate king because the Lord himself had put Nebuchadnezzar into power and said the following not only to the Jews but to all Gentile nations as well. Listen to this excerpt from Jeremiah 27, 1-8. At the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Yoshiao, the king of Judah, the words came to Jeremiah, to Jeremiah from Adonai. Adonai says this to me, Make yourself a yoke of straps and crossbars and put it onto your neck. Send similar yokes to the kings of Edom, of Moab, and of the people of Ammon, and of Zor, and of Sidon, by means of the envoys they send to Jerusalem and to Zedekiah, Zidkiah, king of Judah. Give them this message for their masters by telling their envoys that Adonai Zevaot, the God of Israel says for them to tell their masters this I made the earth, humankind, and the animals on the earth by my great power and my outstretched arm and I will give it to whom it seems right to me for now I have given over all these lands to my servant Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon I have also given him the wild animals to serve him. All the nations will serve him, his son and his grandson, until his own country gets its turn, at which time many nations and great kings will make him their slave. The nation and the kingdom that refuses to serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel, that will not put their necks under the yoke of the king, I will punish, says Adonai, with sword, famine, and plague until I put an end to them. Through Him. So, does that mean that in our modern times as believers that, for instance, we are to accept gay marriage as the law of the land and stay silent since we are to obey our government? Or that if a family member is gay that we ought to attend and celebrate their wedding in order to keep family peace, not harm our relationship? Or if we have a family or a member or a friend living with a significant other without being married, that we should say nothing or treat that situation as though they were married? Should we stand with those who say that abortion, which is the law of the land, Is merely a woman's health care rights issue, and understand that this is a matter of personal choice since we're a democracy. How about the subject of Israel? Do we agree that Israel is merely a foreign policy issue, and that our own national interests, as described by our government, override any concern of tiny Israel over there? hereditary land rights or the right to defend themselves or even to be a Jewish state, which is more and more being described as racism. How do we respond to friends and family about biblical doctrine when the trend is towards saying we can interpret scriptural passages any way we like and every way a believer chooses is correct and it's all okay with God? or since the advent of Jesus that sin is now completely customized and individualized. That is, what the Bible says is a sin for you is not a sin for everyone and not for me unless I feel the Holy Spirit tells me that it is. What do we say to our Christian friends who say we must deal with the sticky issue of Israel with the Palestinians with fairness and even in hand because of the so-called New Testament law of love. Or that Muslims worship the same God as Christians and Jews, they just don't know it. So we need to be understanding. We need to pray and worship alongside them. I mean, I could go on and on stepping on your toes up here. Making everybody here feel uncomfortable in one way or another with these confrontational questions. The point is that our answers to these questions always involve a self-imposed limit on just how far we're willing to go as regards our personal faithfulness towards God. And in our day, those believers who are perceived as going the farthest and stretching the limits and remaining the staunchest in administering their Judeo-Christian faith beliefs to every area of their lives, well, they're labeled as fundamentalists and fanatics. And as such, threats to peace, to universal tolerance. Those who are more easily mold and adapt their Judeo-Christian faith to conform to the trajectory of secular humanist society and intellectualism and the concepts of democratized individual rights and entitlements and those who compartmentalize their beliefs so as to separate Sunday spirituality from Monday through Saturday reality are seen as enlightened and members in good standing of the world community. If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lived today, I don't think they'd be painted in any better light, even among believers, than the Babylonians saw them in the 6th century BC. They would be seen as ignorant hangers-on to an ancient faith that doesn't apply to their new situation. So what will you do? What will you do? What will you choose when you have a choice between absolute faithfulness or continued comfort and personal peace? Thankfully, few of us will ever face what those three Jewish men were facing. Yet, of only the few examples I've confronted you with, We face choices every single day regarding faithful submission to God versus personal freedoms. And I want to close today with this thought directly from our matchless Messiah, Yeshua the Christ. Because he asks a foundational question and he sets down a firm rule for those who say they want to follow him. A question that those three Jewish men had decided upon six centuries before he was born. In Luke 14, 25-35, it says this, Large crowds were traveling along with Yeshua, Turning, he said to them, If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and his sisters, yes, and his own life, besides, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own execution stake and come after me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Don't you sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough capital to complete it? If you don't, then when you've laid the foundation but you can't finish it, all the onlookers start making fun of you. And they say, this is the man who began to build but he couldn't finish. Or again, suppose one king is going out to wage war with another king. Doesn't he first sit down and consider whether he with his 10,000 troops has enough strength to meet the other one who is coming against him with 20,000 troops? If he hasn't, then while the other one is still far away, he sends a delegation to inquire about terms for peace. So every one of you who doesn't renounce all that he has cannot be my disciples. Salt's excellent. But even if the salt becomes tasteless, what can it be used to season? It's fit for neither soil nor manure. People just throw it out. Those who have ears that can hear, let them hear.